Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayoke and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, March 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition uh, of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the Lugansk People's Republic leader that the area wants to hold a referendum on merging with the Russian Federation. Sudanese armed opposition groups have differed over the military coup which occurred last October the 25th. We'll have details on that. The East African community is poised to receive $8.7 billion in investments from the African Development Bank. And an African mask uh, from Gabon has sold over protest uh, for $4.2 million at an auction in Paris. In the second hour, we feature a panel discussion held over Kenyan television, analyzing the position of South Africa regarding the war in Ukraine. Finally, we conclude our month-long focus on women's history with a rare archived audio file of a July 1969 panel examining the role of women and the struggle against repression in the United States. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the legendary Brenda Fossey. Let's listen in. Proposing, 
Oh, 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the legendary uh, Brenda Foxy uh, from the Republic of South Africa, an assortment uh, of her songs. And right now we want to move into the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. These are some of the headlines uh, from today's Pan-African Newswire. The lead story uh, deals with uh, the referendum on becoming part of Russia. It may be held in the Lugansk People's Republic uh, in the near future. The LPR head, Leonid Pasenchek, uh, told reporters uh, earlier today, he said, I think uh, that in the near future, a referendum will be held on the territory of the republic where people will exercise their constitutional right and express their opinion on joining Russia. For some reason, I am sure that this is exactly how it will be Peshenik uh, assured. The situation on the line of engagement in Donbass escalated on February the 17th. At that time, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk uh, People's Republics reported the most massive bombardments by the Ukrainian military over the past months, which damaged civilian infrastructure and caused civilian casualties. On February 21st, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree recognizing the sovereignty of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic. Subsequent treaties of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance were signed with their leaders. Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a televised address on February 24th that in response to a request by the leaders of Donbass republics, he had made a decision to carry out a special military operation. The Russian head of state stressed that Moscow had no plans of occupying Ukrainian territories. Also in relationship to the current conflict in Ukraine, Widely seen as Russia's President Vladimir Putin's closest ally in the European Union, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has sought to assert Hungary's neutrality in the war in Ukraine, even as his allies in the EU and NATO assist uh, the embattled country and punish Russia for launching the largest armed conflict in Europe in many years. Orban, who faces a difficult election on April 3rd, has refused to supply Ukraine with military aid alone among Ukraine's EU neighbors and has not allowed lethal weapons to be shipped to Ukraine across Hungary's borders, arguing that providing such assistance uh, to Ukraine would draw Hungary into the war. Orban, while avoiding ever mentioning Putin's by name, has portrayed himself as the defender of his country's peace and security, while insisting that the European Union sanctions against Russia not be extended to its energy sector, of which Hungary is a major beneficiary. The answer to the question of which side Hungary is on is that Hungary is on Hungary's side, Orban wrote uh, yesterday on social media. While his approach has gained traction among many of his supporters, Orban's reluctance to act unambiguously in support of Ukraine and his insistence on maintaining his Russian economic interests has led to frustration and outrage among other European leaders, uh, not least the Ukrainian president himself. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, in the Republic of Sudan, Yasir Arman, deputy head of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, the SPLM-N, yesterday confirmed the divergence between him and the group's leader, Malik Agar, over the Burhan coup, but reiterated his commitment to the unity of the movement. 
after the coup, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan in October of 2021, Arman was among the political detainees. Also, after his release, his political positions contrasted with Agar, who in speeches at the recent SRF meeting in as Damazin attacked the Forces for Freedom and Change and the Resistance Committees for their rejection of dialogue with the coup leaders. In an interview with Al Jazeera Television on Saturday, Rahman said he does not agree with Agar in his criticisms against the civilian component, adding that uh, they have discussions, have had discussions over this matter. The Sudan People's Liberation Movement is the people's movement, and it stands with him wherever they stand. To explain Malik's position and his continued membership in the military-led sovereign council, he said that Agar's fear is a return of war in the country. The revolution can't stop the war. We will not go back to war if we stand with the masses. If we do not stand with the masses, then we will go back to war, he stressed uh, to explain his position. He further said that the coup has violated the constitutional declaration, which is the legal framework of the Juba Peace Agreement. This framework does not exist today. The coup must end and go and head to where the masses stand for a civilian democratic change. The peace signatory groups of the Sudanese Revolutionary Front, led by Hadi Idris, have been slammed for remaining in the Sovereign Council and the military-led transitional government. Arman, who clearly distanced himself from the coup and the military component, has also been criticized for not taking an open position against Agar. The SPLMN deputy leader underscored his adherence to the unity of the peace signatory groups and to unite PLN, SPLMN under the leadership of Aldel Aziz Al-Hilu. He stressed that the political movement in Sudan needs to be reshaped and the SPLM's vision of a new Sudan needs to be reviewed. He developed his ideas about the SPLMN role, uh, saying it is crucial to build a strong democratic force in Sudan. The reunification of the critical mass that will end the citizenship crisis in Sudan, allow the development and growth of Sudan and democratic stability as well as development, he said. The Sudanese Revolutionary Front held a three-day meeting in Ad Damazin, but Arman did not take part in the retreat. I think that the participants will make good decisions. They will move the Revolutionary Front closer to the people and that the Revolutionary Front will continue uh, to the collapse of this coup, he added. Aman also confirmed the existence of contacts between the coup leaders and the FFC coalition, emphasizing they have a personal character and did not make tangible progress. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, East African member states are expected to benefit from at least $8.77 billion U.S. billion worth of investment out of $32.8 billion drawn at the Africa Investment Forum. This is according to the president of the African Development Bank, Akiwame A. Adesina, who said that over 500 project sponsors, investors, deal brokers, and government representatives had taken part in a three-day event. In the East African community, the deal ranges from transport healthcare, energy, and agriculture, among other sectors. In particular, the largest deal linked uh, during uh, the forum 
is the 3.3 billion railway corridor that will run from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, to Bujumbura, Burundi, to Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, with an extension to Kigali in Rwanda, which will be done as a public-private partnership project. Adesini said that there is a lot of political support and goodwill for the project. This is all part of improving the regional integration and also accelerating the Africa free trade area. It is going to drive down the cost of moving things, he added. Other deals closed during the forum are an unspecified amount that will facilitate vaccine production in Kenya and agricultural investment to improve East Africa's food security, especially wheat and grain production. In West Africa, a four- to six-lane highway corridor connecting four countries that will cost $15.6 billion got the largest share of all the investment deals. The highway will run uh, from Lagos in Nigeria to Lome in Togo and Accra in Ghana to Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. It is expected to support uh, 75% of the trade in the West Africa region, reduce transport costs by 48%, increase inter- and intra-regional trade volume by 15 to 25 percent and impact the lives of over 500 million people, Dr. Adesina said. Meanwhile, West Africa will get $16.92 billion in investment expenditures, 47 percent of the total amount of deals signed at the forum. Central African countries will get $4.27 billion. Southern Africa will get $5.44 billion and North Africa, $804 million. Across the continent, the energy sector will get the largest share of investments with $19.44 billion. The report least released by the African Development Bank uh, just this last past Monday indicates that the funds include expansion of renewable energy sources, development of liquefied natural gas infrastructure, and to develop electric vehicles manufacturing infrastructure. Women-led businesses will receive a boost of $4.94 billion in investment from the forum, out of which $1 billion will be used to set up a women's advisory facility by the African Development Bank. The plan, Adelina said, is to remove obstacles in the ways of businesses of women, citing that their women should never remain small in their business endeavors. And uh, finally... Uh, there is a story uh, that uh, surfaced uh, earlier today noting that a carved mask from Central Africa dating from the 19th century was sold in France for 4.2 million euros. That's 4.6 million U.S. dollars on yesterday. Despite uh, protests from Gabonese in the auction house calling for the item's, quote, restitution, unquote, the rare wooden and jail mask used in ceremonies by the Fong group of Gabon smashed its estimate of 300 to 400,000 euros at the auction in the southern French city of Montpierre. This is a case of receiving stolen goods. A man describing himself as a member of the Gabonese community in Montpierre exclaiming from the back of the auction room surrounded by half a dozen compatriots, quote, we'll file a complaint. Our ancestors, my ancestors from the Fong community, we will recover this object, the protester added, describing the mask as a, quote, colonial ill-gotten gain, unquote. Auctioneer Jean-Christophe Giuseppe said the auction was, quote, entirely legal, unquote, as far as he was, was aware. 
Accompanied by security guards, the demonstrators left the auction hall calmly but continued their protest against the sale of African works of art. Saturday's auction also included a Congolese chair which sold for 44,000 euros. With added costs and fees, the total paid by the successful bidder for the Fong mask was 5.25 million euros, close to a record for such an item. In 2006, a similar Fong mask bought in 5.9 million euros at another Paris auction. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment. And in concluding uh, this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and blogs and websites. Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you would like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, uh, if uh, you want to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that's at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And by logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com slash, uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access uh, to uh, today's program, but well over 1,100 other archived editions uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, we'll take a musical interlude, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the beautiful voice of uh, Marsha Hunt uh, with the tune entitled Black Flower. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Sunday, March 27th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. And uh, we're going to conclude our um, Women's uh, History Month uh, program after this uh, upcoming segment, uh, which will do an analysis of um, the position of the Republic of South Africa vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine, uh, which, uh, in our opinion, of course, is a NATO-backed war, a war designed uh, and prompted uh, by uh, the insistence on the part of the United States uh, to spread uh, the NATO uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization uh, to uh, other regions of East, uh, other region of um, Eastern Europe. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, at this uh, timely, timely hour uh, following the situation uh, in Ukraine on a daily basis. And uh, you can follow uh, the situation in Eastern Europe among other, a myriad of other uh, geopolitical regions throughout the world, particularly the African continent, at the Pan-African Newswire. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to hear a segment uh, from Kenya uh, National Television discussing uh, Africa and the Ukraine conflict, a panel discussion, a debate uh, with uh, the two perspectives. Let's listen in. Welcome back. You're watching Global Today. And we want now to concentrate on our discussion here. But um, I'll be remiss if I also don't just read out an apology from uh, Peter Kagwanja. Professor Peter Kagwanja was meant to be here, but he says, In Muranga, it got too late, he says. So he cannot really make it uh, this morning. But we continue the conversation nonetheless. Now, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has blamed NATO for the war in Ukraine and said he would resist calls to condemn Russia in comments that cast doubt over whether he will be accepted by Ukraine or the West as a mediator. According to Ramaphosa, the war could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings from amongst its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion will lead to greater, not less, instability in the region. But he added that South Africa cannot con- condone the use of force in violation of international law an apparent reference to Russia's February uh, 24th invasion of Ukraine. Ramaphosa also revealed that Putin had assured him personally that negotiations were making progress. The South African leader said he had not yet talked with Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, but that he wanted to. President Vladimir Putin has characterized Russia's actions as a special operation to disarm and denazify Ukraine and counter what he calls NATO aggression. Listen in could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings from amongst its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion would lead to greater, not less. All right, so where does this put Africa? Because uh, Africa has been 
uh, mealy mouthed about Russia Ukraine war for the longest time. We just heard from, uh, of course, our own here, uh, Ambassador Kimani, uh, during the United Nations Security Council, roundly condemning what is happening, uh, uh, or roundly condemning Russia with uh, the Ukrainian war as it were. But uh, voices of concern are arising on where is the stand of Africa. And here now is Ramaphosa. I just want to hear from our panelists, beginning with you, uh, Dr. Kanenje. Listening to uh, Ramaphosa and what he says, uh, does it really speak? Of course, he's not speaking for the entire Africa, but this is the first voice that we're hearing from a, a presidential uh, you know, figure from Africa by the end of the day. Um, Ibao, uh, what Ramaphosa, say Ramaphosa uh, in South Africa, um, partly represents, I think, a sense in the global south. And uh, from our round table on Monday, mm -hmm. it was very clear that this sense in the global south is a little bit different from how people view it uh, from the north. And I think one thing he's alluding to is um, even just going back to the statement that our ambassador made, uh, uh, you know, which was taken in just in one way in terms mm -hmm. about condemning, mm -hmm. uh, but he also spoke to the emergency of unilateralism that has been going on in recent years. And much of the global south is very acutely aware of the double standards, actually, that are being uh, practiced by our Western partners. And unless they seek to actually see it also from uh, the point of view of the global south, it's going to be challenging. Now, of course, we understand that South Africa is part of the BRICS, you know, with China and Russia mm. and India, you know, trying perhaps to provide an alternative world order. Mm -hmm. uh, but even part of the formation of the BRICS is uh, the recognition that uh, uh, the global south was becoming increasingly marginal, especially in global affairs, mm -hmm. and that uh, the new world order uh, that was expected with the collapse of Soviet Union has been characterized largely by a lot of, in of, of, of interventionism and unilateralism. And, you know, Africans look at their own experience in Libya, for instance, mm -hmm. and they wonder what kind of consensus was there internationally and in terms of, of, of legality that mm -hmm. actually had to necessitate or require the destruction of the state, as well as other parts in the world. And so, uh, uh, you know, merging that, uh, those sentiments with what uh, was clear that came out from our round table was actually, you know, we had representation from Europe, from, you know, from Russia, even from Ukraine, uh, from the United States, mm -hmm. and uh, lead, some leading African scholars in this country. You know, and the, the, the sentiment is that there is, I, I think, a disconnect between the way the Global South looks at the world order mm -hmm. and the way the North looks at the world order. And increasingly, a number of leading African countries, while they, they say they don't condone uh, Russia's activities in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. uh, because of the you know, violation of, 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 of uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty, a number of them have also not condemned mm -hmm. necessarily you know, those actions. And I think as uh, the conflict unfolds and with the kind of response that we have witnessed, there is a chance that we are going to have a rather new world order that is mm -hmm. going to be a lot more different from what we have had. Mm -hmm. And I think our Western partners also need to pay attention to this because what this is also likely to do is likely to push a number of the global south countries further into the armpit of China, for mm -hmm. instance, and for obvious reasons, because they may be seen perhaps a little bit more fairer and uh, perhaps less hypocritical, even though we understand that in democracy, 
and uh, you know, liberal ideologies are not exactly some of the things they espouse. Mm. Ahashi, uh, South Africa has been approached to play a mediation role, Ramaphosa tweeted last week. Uh, he, if he's been approached to play a, media, a mediator role, or South Africa has been actually chosen by, to actually play that particular role, and then he comes uh, on the floor of the house, he says he's condemning you know, uh, NATO. Uh, for what is uh, happening in Russia, has he not really taken a stand? Even before he goes for those uh, mediation and talks at the end of the day, you you come with your own opinion. Uh, you come with your own, of course, stand as far as the war is concerned. So, how do you become, uh, you know, an an arbiter? You know, uh, Western liberalism is perplexed, uh, and I must say it's hubris, because their understanding of the African mind or the African sense and sensibility about the war in Ukraine is um, based on this uh, same kind of unilateralism that they practice in international relations. You know, unilateralism does not come only from um, a political economy, mm -hmm. but it also comes from a cultural view of the world. I mean, who are these Africans to tell us why are we wrong here, why we are right? It is a hubris that... Uh, is um, fused into the myth of Western civilization, that they are the leading force in global history, and that their view of the world is pertinent, and everybody else's is um, not um, at the civilizational scale. And part of this discourse and narrative about is this whole idea about the you know clash of civilizations. Mm -hmm. Now, when there's a, when you think that the world is based on the clash of civilizations. Mm -hmm. And then inside your own civilization of uh, white, blue-eyed, brown people, there is a clash. You know, there is a kind of sclerosis that emerges out of that. And what's that sclerosis? Mm -hmm. It is this um, idea about that uh, uh, in Africa, uh, the European mind believes that uh, we are a chieftaincy, that uh, Africans really don't believe in democracy. They really don't believe in the rule of law. They like the big man dictator who has several wives, um, has got a big farm, looks after cows, um, um, and um, uh, essentially caricatures the African personality into a dwarf when it comes to thinking about civilizations. And I, and I really want to say that Mr. Uh, uh, I, I tweeted to um, uh, Mr. Ramaphosa, he's a friend, he, he, he helped advise us here in Kenya on many issues. I tweeted and I said that Africa needed a response. And Mr. Saleh and Mr. Ramaphosa were quick to say that uh, the civilian population in Ukraine is innocent. Every African feels terrible about the invasion of uh, Ukraine. There's no question about it. Every sense of our human decency calls it, calls it out. We oppose it. We feel that these people are being put as a sandwich. In, affairs of, uh, in the affairs of the global um, security system. However, there are three things that characterizes the African personality on this issue. First and foremost is the Cold War. And you remember South Africa, under apartheid, the United States um, dragged its feet. Had it been, been for the African-American population in the United States, it would have taken more time for the sanctions to hit. Uh, the second thing is Angola. Yes. Um, we, Angola would never have been free 
unless Soviet and Cuba forces came and pushed South African uh, racist apartheid regime back, they were defeated. That led to the independence of Namibia and ultimately to the independence of South Africa. Therefore, this memory, this memory of the contribution of the Soviet Union to the liberation of Africa, whatever the intent was, whatever, is something that is at front and center every African mind. And the fact of the matter is, we can have a different idea about what is going on without, uh, you know, uh, having uh, this something called whataboutism or equivocating on the, on the right of Ukrainian lives to live. We don't want this conflict, but we understand where the conflict comes from and we see where it comes from. And Mr. Ramaphosa's sense largely speaks to what Africa thinks about this war. All right, uh, Professor Nami Damba. So South Africa is joining India, joining uh, China, uh, and of course uh, in the United Nations uh, Security Council vote, uh, you know, against condemning this particular war. It seems they are flinching back on Alia, saying that, uh, you know, Russia should withdraw. So is Ramaphosa also speaking from both sides of the mouth? And, you know, Maswailo Nasema Pia Mwambiangoma Uvutia Kwake, right? So we have, as uh, Dr. Kanenja is saying, of, hey, this part of the BRICS, uh, they have interest because of the BRICS as well at the end of the day. Could that also be uh, sort of uh, acting as a conduit and a conveyor belt to the interest of South Africa uh, within this particular war? So you're siding with Russia. Dubal, uh, allow me to uh, join my colleagues to make several points here. Uh, there was no question uh, that from the time uh, go, uh, Reagan uh, asked Gorbachev to tear down the wall and jointly together with Gorbachev uh, and looking at his writing and his beliefs uh, which are available to all the public, Gorbachev really believed there was a lost opportunity to create a united, um, uh, we could call it United States of Europe uh, where Russia was part and parcel where there was opportunity to reduce this lethal, uh, deadly uh, weapon system uh, that has developed with uh, uh, both sides, uh, United States, Europe, and also Russia. That opportunity was lost, and four, now five succeeding presidents of the United States never made a point uh, to uh, say control NATO from moving eastward and to change the nature of NATO uh, to something else where Russia was accepted and become part of and parcel of uh, a unity that is um, uh, conducive and productive for the future world. Now we are where we are at the bar. Several points I want to make. One is that the war in Russia-Ukraine uh, Russia, is a stalemate. Uh, Ukraine uh, was well-trained, well-equipped, and ready to fight to the last man uh, in Ukraine to protect their country. So Russia is not going to easily walk over uh, Ukraine. Now, Russia, uh, listening to Christian Amapov and the chief spokesperson of Russia, Russia is going to engage in a deadly uh, uh, development, which is using this hypersonic weapon system which are uh, 
basically set for, for, for a, a strategic weapon system. Right. So they will be much more destructive. And they start talking about uh, uh, Dubai. They start talking about uh, nuclear. Right. Uh, that is I'm sorry to butt in, uh, Professor. Yes, I know the weaponization, uh, we can discuss about that, but I have been very pointed regarding uh, what Ramaphosa is saying. And uh, China, you, we have China, uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have as well um, uh, China and India now, and uh, Ramaphosa joining uh, in Rwanda condemning this as well. Just, 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 just your thoughts on that. Dubal, yes. Dubal, Africa cannot stand on the side. This war is wrong. Uh, it, Ambassador Martin stated exactly what Africa need to say. Russia should never have gone into this war. And nobody, if you take the principle of, uh, of, uh, um, of the United Nations and, uh, and the uh, nation state, uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. And therefore, that has to be condemned. And then, secondly, Dubai, we now have to move to a solution. Uh, a solution, if Ramaphosa can be helpful, uh, the India can be helpful, uh, Israel can be helpful, Turkey can be helpful, they need to talk, they need to, talk to Putin. Uh, there is need for a ceasefire uh, right now. And then that will then move to a second stage where diplomacy takes place and where you talk about potential neutrality in the future of Ukraine, not joining either Russia or joining what we call NATO, and then now moving to a clear solution on what needs to be done there, and then moving further uh, Dubai mm -hmm. to a place where Africa-Russia relationship can be productive. Mm -hmm. But there is absolutely, from where I'm coming from, that there is not much Africa can gain from Russia right now by selling weapon of destruction, and then beginning to behave like North Korea. Uh, North Korea economy is, uh, Kenya economy is twice the size of North Korea. Yet they shoot these missiles every other month, and the, the president is laughing when he do that. Now, we don't need that in Africa, and I don't think the world that that uh, 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 the, uh, that Sudan is going to, going to benefit uh, better than Kenya and uh, the rest of the country. Uh, but you, you know the most most outstanding thing that you're saying we cannot really benefit from Russia as a continent, and we have 16 countries, African countries, which have implicitly support you know Russia uh, by not really voting on the UN Security Council at the end of the day, including Eritrea. Uh, which is not really part of, uh, of course, um, of uh, the UN Security Council, but also they, they, they have uh, sided with Russia on this. We know of the mercenaries in uh, Central Africa. We know the resources companies in, in, in this Africa. This is just going to show you that there's a, a swath of Russian invasion here in Africa, a swath of uh, China invasion here in Africa. Uh, uh, is actually a new world order that is being, you know, taken topsy-turvy, as it were, at the end of the day. So, uh, do, do you think w what you're saying really holds water at the end of the day? Just, just think Dubai, about it. Dubai, yeah. let's, let, let's talk facts. Uh, the U.S. economy last year was $25 trillion. Uh, China economy last year was $14 trillion. Russia economy was $2 trillion. 
which is less than, uh, which is less than the state of Texas and equivalent to Brazil. Uh, Russia has hypersonic uh, uh, weapon system and other deadly weapon system. But when you look at the history, look at South Korea and North Korea. South Korea economy is, uh, is one of the largest in the world. North Korea economy is the least. And so the point is by selling weapon of destruction where we will kill each other in Africa, instead of having an economy that's vibrant, that's bringing up the people, increasing technology, helping with education. Russia is not going to do that. The Russia, the past, that partner with Africa for freedom, independence, is gone. We have oligarchy who own everything and control everything and is immune from the kind of Russia that Africa will expect. So, in my opinion, Kenya needs to take a very strong stand like they have with Ghana uh, to stick and stay with the West and develop this country toward the place where Kenya needs to be self-sufficient and not be part of the uh, Ramaphosa um, bandwagon. All right, uh, Peter Bierajak, uh, South Africa has expressed, of course, uh, uh, solidarity uh, on international law, and also this seemed to have taken aback uh, many of the legislators in the House where he was speaking. I can just quote one John Stenhousen, who is the leader of the Democratic Alliance, uh, who said, to the astonish uh, astonishment of the world, the same ANC that once relied on global solidarity in its fight against oppression has now openly sided with oppressor, right? I said this uh, on the debates uh, in the war that uh, South Africa is, is uh, uh, taking a stand on right now. Do you hold with what Professor Naomi Damba is saying in the first place? And if we have 16 countries in this continent implicitly uh, supporting uh, the Russians, where are we headed? What does it tell you? Well, first of all, yes, I completely agree with Professor Naomi Damba. Uh, his analysis is right on the spot. Uh, let me also first add by saying that Ramaphosa is not speaking for the African continent, nor is he speaking for the global south. Uh, we remember just a few weeks ago uh, when the resolution uh, condemning Russia was brought to the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, of African countries, the majority of the countries voted to condemn Russia. 28 countries uh, from Africa voted to condemn Russia. 17 countries abstained, of which South Africa was one of them, uh -huh. and one country uh, voted in support of Russia. And as you correctly pointed out, that was Eritrea, and six, six countries did not uh, vote for whatever reason. So it's, it's important to first state that, that Ramaphosa is speaking for himself and his country. I have noticed uh, on social media there is a lot of support uh, from some of the parties in South Africa uh, for Russia. And it may be, as, as uh, Hashi put it before, because of the memories of the Soviet Union and the support that the Soviet Union provided. Uh, there is no doubt uh, that Soviet Union played a critical role in the end of colonialism in Africa and in uh, independence processes for many of African countries. Even South Sudan, when we started the war first in 1983, uh, the first ally that supported us was the communist Ethiopia, uh, which of course was a client state of the Soviet Union at the time. But of course, the Russia we have today, as I keep saying here every single, every single Wednesday, is not the same Soviet Union. 
the Russia we have now, and it's important people remember this, Soviet Union also included Ukraine, right? It was not Russia. Uh, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. So if people are, uh, are, are, are having these uh, uh, feelings of solidarity because of the support of the Soviet Union, that should also extend to Ukraine because Ukraine was part and parcel of that support that Soviet Union rendered to African countries. But as Noam Edamba mentioned correctly, Russian economy is very small uh, compared to the weight that Russia wants to be given to it when it comes to international affairs. It's a country that has an economy half of that of California. It's an economy that is not diversified, entirely dependent on natural resources, particularly on petroleum and natural gas, which accounts for 60% of the GDP. And now is a country that is being sanctioned, uh, where the currency is completely destroyed, where the long-term savings are gone, and is a country now where free speech is criminalized and is becoming a totalitarian state where people have no rights whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So it's completely shocking that uh, a businessman like Ramaphosa, because Ramaphosa is, is an oligarch in South Africa, is one of the African billionaires. Uh, he knows very well how to make money and uh, what is required, the kind of environment that is required for business to prosper, to come and say that he has been invited. He also said that he has not spoken with the president of Ukraine. So who invited him to come and be a mediator here? It seems like it's the Russian that invited him, mm -hmm. and then he on his own put on this hat of being a mediator, and he wants to come and mediate singing Russian uh, talking points. There is only one issue here, and that is the issue which country has forces on which country? And is Russia forces that have crossed into Ukraine, is Russia that is bombing Ukraine, and Ukraine is a sovereign nation. The rest of the issues don't matter, because at the end of the day, a sovereign nation is free to choose its own destiny. It doesn't matter what it decides to do, as long as it does not violate uh, anything to do with another country. Mm. Ukraine wanted to join NATO. That's it. They wanted to join European Union. That's it. And by the way, the first time Ukraine applied to join NATO was 2008. 2008. And now it's 2022, and Russia is going to war to start uh, war with Ukraine, to start a war because it doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO, a membership that was applied 14 years ago. Just absurd. All right. Uh, let me just come to Dr. Kanenje on this as well. We know that uh, South Africa has no economic or military uh, interest in Russia, as it were. So this particular approach from Ramaphosa, is it just a real political uh, approach? What's really informing him? Uh, he's, as we have uh, Dr. Peter Berajaka also commenting that, yes, uh, this is his own interest. He's not speaking on behalf of Africa at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh Actually, thanks a lot, you know, for, for the contribution, uh, my colleague. You know, um, one of the things that I think we need to look at, and for those of us who study diplomacy, we look at actions, you know, not words. And when you look at actions, especially of the Global South, is much of the Global South has refused, literally, to join the sanctions movement in terms of... Uh, imposing sanctions against Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, leading countries, Indonesia, Brazil, fact, the Indonesian Foreign Affairs Minister said we're not going to join sanctions blindly. The Argentinian Foreign Minister said the other day that uh, they don't think there is a mechanism to be able to find a resolution. And much of Latin America, Asia, and actually Africa, they have refused categorically to join the sanctions and the kind of sitting on the edges. Now, uh, that is more telling 
as opposed to just words of support or words of condemnation. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, I firmly believe even just based on the roundtable we did, mm -hmm. and we didn't go there really with any you know, predispositions of how things were going to do to, to take shape, but there is an underlying feeling of the Global South with regard to what I say, you know, double standards uh, when it comes to international law, uh, international racism, that where, for instance, whenever those cases affect Africans, people of color, the response is never the same, whether it's to do with sanctions or actually just to do with humanitarian help. Uh, here we have seen, in this case, uh, Europeans being pretty much offered money to host you know, Ukrainian refugees. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to Africans or Arabs or Asians, we're trying to work out a way in which how can we prevent them from coming to our countries. Mm -hmm. And this feeling, and I want to encourage all our colleagues to actually read uh, just follow what is happening, especially in reading dailies, in, whether it's in Latin America, in Asia or Africa, and see how they're covering and discussing that conflict. Look at the real discussions that is happening within academia or research institutions in those countries. You're going to realize the underlying sense mm -hmm. is that this is not a conflict they want to be part of, and they think this is an international law and international relations, and perhaps that they need to be a different system. Now, that does not mean they support the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely not. But the underlying feeling, even within the continent, and if we are actually to be honest with ourselves and just try to take time, you're going to realize that there is a sense of pretty much global apartheid that really, in which Africans, people of color, mm -hmm. are never treated you know, equally. And when it comes to the history of the conflict itself, there is a sense of injustice, even though there is a bigger injustice, because one injustice cannot be used to justify another injustice of what is happening right now. But for us to actually deny or even just say that perhaps Ramaphosa is speaking for himself, mm -hmm. uh, I think it may be a little bit of a misnomer, misnomer. because he's actually speaking for a <laughs> lot, for of, lot of Africans. For a lot of Africans. Yeah. And I don't mean to disagree with my brother because, of course, he's representing South Africa, and South Africa has a unique history yes. with apartheid, and in which, of course, the Soviet bloc used to be more supportive. Yes. In fact, the brother to, 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 to Fidel Castro is the one who, who was physically heading the military actually in, in Angola to beat back the apartheid South Africa uh, military. And so, of course, you have that history also meshed in, mm -hmm. but much of the global south, in terms of actions, has actually refused to join the sanctions because that would have been more meaningful with regard to putting meaning to their words, words. as opposed to just expressing words of condemnation. Um, so, so there's a usable past that Putin also is really leveraging on, as you say, uh, their support for the anti-apartheid. And so there's also that nostalgic feeling from the South Africans, uh, who now we have Ramaphosa, as they have put to me, and the, the figure of uh, the Southern African region, Debal. speaking for many as well. So, so well, I find myself agreeing with um, uh, my colleague, Dr. Mm -hmm. Pierre uh, Ajak, and the reason I agree with him is the is is reason of history. And I, I believe that uh, Russia um, invasion of Ukraine under the normal statutes of international law, is of course illegal. But you know the uh, CIA dragged um, the great uh, late Colin Powell to the United Nations Security Council. Uh, the American government cheated its own Secretary of State. They told him to read a statement in the Security Council and he brought out something called centrifuges and said Iraq had centrifuges and that they were developing nuclear weapons of mass destruction and the world had to follow the lead of the United States in what was subsequently called the shock and awe bombing of probably the most advanced Arab state in the Middle East. 
two million people died. The entire Middle East is a mess. It has led to Syria and to Libya. Okay? This is the kind of moral equivocation that I find really toxic. <laughs> that it, uh, when it came to Iraq, when it came to what happened to those people, it was about freedom. It was about uh, the Mac world against the Jihad. <laughs> and uh, when it came to Ukraine, you could see the West's media. Um, it's actually quite uh, gagging sometimes, you know, how the use of little children and the suffering of the Ukrainian people is uh, used to postulate in the media. You can see the economist, the spokesperson of neoliberal disciplinary uh, world order, saying, is China and Putin the alternative world order? So, Duval, what we are com uh, condemning is not condemning or being in solidarity with Russia invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is that when the United States does the same thing, the, re the international response is different from what is happening now. So we're just calling, and I, and I agree with Mr. Ajak, that we're just calling for a uniform, a uniform criticism of these kinds of things in the international order today. Mm -hmm. But you can't have one standard for Iraq. You can't have one standard for Libya. You can't have one standard for Syria and have a completely different standard for Ukraine. That's the issue that we're, we're just uh, putting on the table. And that is ideological. That is about material interest. And that is about what the global order is going to become. And that's what people are fighting over. And I can tell you the West is going to walk away from Ukraine because Mr. Putin may park a couple of nuclear weapons in London. And nobody is going to stand up for Ukraine after and, you know, hypocritically pushing them to a certain direction. And Mr. Zelensky himself has said, I am going to negotiate with uh, Mr. Putin in Jerusalem. He said, the city of peace. And I, I predicted that last time I was yes, here. You're a prophet. I yes, predicted yes. it. Yes, yes. And, and, and it happened. And uh, I can tell you that uh, we are at a turning point. And Mr. Zelensky has noticed that his Western friends have left him. And he's going to go and talk to Mr. Putin. And the arrangements are going to be completely different come next week. I say here again. So what is the rhyme or reason for President Biden also going to Brussels, meeting the European countries, and people were wondering, will he uh, have a meeting also with the Ukrainian president? Will he go to the modern area as it were? Professor? Um, there are um, several things I want our colleagues, also the audience, to understand. Uh, at this point, um, it is very, very important for United States and Europe to speak with one voice uh, because we have a potential serious catastrophe for the entire world uh, such that we don't know who is going to be left if Putin starts using nuclear war. Uh, we don't know. But let me tell you the development which I'm even more concerned about. Uh, I'm concerned about the rise of what we call Germanic race in Europe, uh, which again going to look at the uh, First World War, Second World War. I'm really concerned about Japan and Japan uh, uh, using highly sophisticated technology to develop and, and improve on American uh, weapon system. Uh, that will completely deter uh, and, and challenge China. If China 
attempt to go the, uh, the, the way the Russian has moved on Taiwan. And so what we are going to have is a global, global thermal nuclear weapon, third world war. That is the issue. And Africans who are standing on the side must understand that. That's the core point. So we have to condemn in the strongest voice possible what Russia has done. And we also have to be very clear with Europe and NATO that we don't need to be used, we don't need to be part of that, uh, the, that, uh, the, uh, the, the game plan. We cannot push the world to the brink. It is time to have a ceasefire and begin talking sense on where the world needs to go. Mm -hmm. All right. Talking of the escalation and uh, the weapons that uh, you were alluding to earlier, uh, the respect of nuclear uh, you know, uh, bombs as well, but we've seen Russia unleashing some of the highly sophisticated weapons. We can talk about the thermoborics uh, as it were right now. We can talk about, I don't know what's the name of that weapon, but it's actually traveling 10 times faster than the speed of sound. Isn't that uh, really consternating? Uh, and you can tell us more, uh, Dr. Peter Biarajak, as a wind-up on that. Well, I'm not uh, an expert on uh, weapon systems. I think that thing is uh, an issue that I would uh, gladly defer to Professor Nomi Damba. But back to the issue that we are talking about. Let me say that uh, what Hashi is saying is something that we all agree on this forum. I don't think there is anyone here that has ever defended uh, the war uh, that the America waged on Iraq or what happened uh, in regard to... to uh, uh, to, to Libya. Yes. Uh, if it is the issue of Syria, both of them are to blame. Uh, in fact, it was Russian forces that raised Aleppo to the ground. And I remember that beautiful city when I visited in 2006. Uh, if it is the issue of uh, intervention, this is something that we are all saying that that is not the right thing to be done. Uh, even though we live here in the U.S., uh, one good thing about America is that there is freedom of speech and anyone can uh, speak his mind. Even within America here, there was a very large and vocal anti-war movement. And if you remember President Barack Obama, uh, when he won the presidency the first time, he was running uh, on the promise to end the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. Uh, so within America, there is democracy, there is freedom of speech, and there is a system that corrects itself. That is not the case in Russia. And what we are saying in the, with regard to the situation in Russia is that it is unleashing uh, some very dangerous forces that Professor just mentioned. Uh, he mentioned the issue of Taiwan, and that is a real concern that everybody is watching. Uh, we are worried about what lessons that China may learn from something like this. I, as a South Sudanese, am worried about lessons that a Sudanese regime that is now moving closer and closer to the Russian orbit may do in regard to South Sudan. Uh, it wouldn't be anyhow different from what Russia has done in regard to Ukraine. And we know very well our history and the contention that we have there. So the point we are saying here and the reason why we are condemning Russia is that it is violating the sovereignty of another country. And it is creating a world that is much and much, much more dangerous. I agree with the issue of racism, 100%. There is no doubt about it. The way that the refugees in Ukraine are being treated uh, is not the way that refugees in Syria, in fact, Poland, which has now taken in millions and millions of refugees from uh, Ukraine, 
the, the prime minister there ran on the platform to not allow a single refugee uh, from Middle East. Uh, you remember here Donald Trump ran on the campaign uh, to ban Muslims from ever entering the United States. Uh, those things are, should be condemned, uh, and rightly so. But at the same time also, we, leave, we, we, we are quick at condemning West when it does these discriminatory issues, but we also don't look at ourselves. It was just a few months ago that here in Kenya, the Kenyan government announced that it was going to close down the Kakuma refugee camp and it's going to, to close down the Dadaab refugee camps. Uh, these are refugees from South Sudan, refugees from Somalia, refugees from some of the regional countries, uh, whose countries have been turned by uh, thuggish leaders into, uh, into uh, uh, death fields. And now we want to kick them out. Yet here we come and complain that our refugees are not treated well by the Western white people, whereas we in Africa do not treat ourselves very well. It's very difficult sometimes to travel to some African countries than it is to travel to, to foreign countries. Mm -hmm. So the issue, we have to also be honest with ourselves and, and, and first treat ourselves as we deserve. Treat ourselves as brothers and build ourselves. Build up our people so that our people are respected. We cannot demand respect of our people from foreigners when we treat them like nothing. Mm -hmm. Look now how in South Sudan how President Salva Kiir and Riyad Machar are treating South Sudanese people. Subjected to endless war, people are being executed on the streets, uh, people are being denied basic lives, women are raped in mass. How do, you, how, do they have now a moral, uh, a moral sense to demand that uh, their own people be treated well from others, by others when they don't give them the right kind of treatment? So these are the issues that we should always be pointing out. Thank but you. I do agree, racism is a problem and we should always be demanding that. But in this case here, Russia has violated Ukraine's sovereignty and is contributing to creating a world that is far, far more dangerous. All right, thank you. Now, of course, we have confluence of uh, factors and issues that are connected with the war as well, and uh, one of which is uh, that suppression of uh, the supply shocks on fertilizer. And Nigerian billionaire Aliko Dangonte has opened a 3 million ton fertilizer plant at a cost of 2.5 billion shillings to target African and foreign markets even as the war in Ukraine has driven up prices for natural gas. A key ingredient for making urea. Dangonte said exports from the plant will go to Brazil, which relies heavily on Russia for imports of fertilizer. Shipments will also go to the United States, India and Mexico. Fertilizer prices have been rising at a time when planting usually picks up around the world, especially after Russia, uh, the world's biggest exporter of fertilizer, invaded Ukraine last month. The war has also disrupted shipping. The plant, commissioned by President Mohamedou Buhari, located at the Lekki Free Zone in Lagos State, is designed to produce 3 million tons of urea per year and supply all the major markets in Saharan Africa, and uh, I think this is a good move by Dagote. Uh, you, you know the opportunity, so you know to seize the moment. This is seizing the moment. Mm. Uh, so you have that uh, business acumen, uh, looking at what is happening currently, and then taking advantage, setting up a plan. Of course, here in the country, we've been crying about fertilizer. A bag of fertilizer is going for around uh, 6,700 shillings, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right? Right now, almost to 7,000, and that is, as we we're talking before, bound to affect food security at the end of the day. Briefly. Former Obama's uh, Chief of Staff, Ram Emanuel, liked to say that never let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> because every crisis provides an opportunity. 
and I think it's about time for us as a continent, as a country, mm -hmm. what opportunities are we going to exploit from this? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's an unfortunate situation, but now we realize what we cannot rely on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's about time we change the course on how we do things and perhaps become a little bit more self-reliant, whether in, in terms of uh, increasing our production and manufacture of fertilizer or dealing with uh, the kind of clients that are actually going to be reliable. Because one thing that was lost, Africa was never considered, and the, the, the developing world, in the degree of sanctions that were actually imposed on Russia, mm -hmm. because the most vulnerable countries economically are the ones who are going to suffer the most. We don't have safety we don't have bailouts for industries or for, for, for families. And so I think it's important we have to look at ourselves a little bit inward and try to develop a degree of self-sufficiency when it comes to agriculture and food production, because what we are facing is an uncertain and complex future. Right. Uh, well, this is a very, uh, Mr. Dangote is um, a big fan of Mr. Dangote. Remember, he came here and wanted to open um, a cement factory. Yeah, yeah and uh, the, the, some guy over there wanted money. Kitu Kidogo. Uh, we know who that guy was, right? No, I don't know. Who was it? <laughs> Come in enough trouble already. <laughs> but uh, let me just. Then he went to Tanzania. Uh, so he went to Tanzania because uh, our folks here. And uh, said, you know, we want 10%. You know, Safari comes here, they want 5%. Uh, whoever wants to come here, they want 2%. Uh, you know, uh, Debal, you look at uh, equity, and I'm, I mean, it's really sad that, that our, our chairman today, who's the chairman of equity, is not here. The chairman is busy in uh, Yeah, they made 40 billion uh, profit, so he's definitely busy. There's a lot of money in the account. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, well, of course. I mean, it's important to say that one right. <laughs> and I believe good for him, of course. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And the this CEO an of uh, Equity is going to walk away with half a billion shillings in dividends, uh, Debal. I don't know if there's any capital gains tax on that by the government of Kenya. Uh, I think that uh, we ought to be very careful about these behemoths here in Kenya, Safaricom, Equity, and all these other big, big corporates, Debal. There's uh, some antitrust that's coming up. These guys are becoming so big that I don't think there's a market to compete with them. And, they, and if I go to Parliament, and they, they're going to fight me in the constituency now. <laughs> but I'm probably going to bring legislation of antitrust. Thank you. Maloney, of course, Rasmus Gwenche is not here with us as well. So I think there's, there's a big, big, big uh, uh, scoop that we will be expecting next week from the dividends. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's Professor Mencher. I mean, the chairman went and shoot. Professor Norway now. I do <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I think we need to take another tax. <laughs> we, we need to develop this country. And, uh, and people like Dangote, people like Safaricom, um, group like Safaricom, uh, our friend Equity, um, and, and, and Hashi, you remember, uh, Barclays Bank and Standard Bank uh, warned people that if you have 20 million in your account, they close. Uh, because he's useless. And our friend, <laughs> and our friend Mwangi came with a really creative ideas. If you have few potatoes, uh, sell them and we will open an account. <laughs> so so the, the point, we need creative, innovative leaders in the industry. Uh, this is what's going to provide the job of the future.
um, border border cities right now is a threat because it's not organized. Thank but you. There, there is a creative way to organize you. these young people thank you, thank <laughs> you. to produce. Right. <laughs> All right, Dr. Yeah. Peter Bierajak, we need also to be winding up briefly. Yeah. Uh, Dangote, yes, uh, well, let me congratulate Dangote. Uh, he's really the pride of Africa. Uh, what he has been able to do and uh, the way that he's expanding investments, creating jobs and opportunities in many countries on the continent. Uh, this is a great move. Uh, I wish that he could move to South Sudan at some point. I, in fact, uh, last year I was, uh, I was uh, selected as a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And I learned that Dangote sponsored all the fellows from Africa. So at some point I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting him in, uh, uh, at, at some of the, the forum events uh, uh, in the future. Thank you. Right, thank you. We are winding up, uh, but director, uh, just briefly, we have uh, this editorial cartoon as we're winding up uh, today. Uh, this is in the Daily Nation. Don't rush me. Uh, this is uh, what Victor has drawn. This is Mata Karua, who has not yet really decided. Is it Kenya Kwanzaa? Is it Azmio Laumoja? Uh, or is it, uh, of course, Oka? Uh, that is where he, she's really torn in. This is uh, in the Daily Nation. Also, the standard for you, briefly, as we're winding up, has this for you. And this is what Gado has done for us as uh, we are running up. And come up with the one which is coming up because of time. We have the star, uh, Celeste has drawn this for you. And this is Wanjigi with his uh, billion dollar yacht, as you can see, that is seated there. Of course, the yacht in court. But it's being given, yeah, the lifesaver there with the Safina party. And uh, we know there was that NDC of Safina party. This is in today's star. Let me try quickly and uh, show you what we have uh, in uh, the People Daily. And this is what you're working up to uh, in the front, on the front page of People Daily. Uh, the standard is here, quickly. And this is what Gado drew today. It's, uh, of course, one year for Samir in office. And uh, there's that ominous cloud of the new constitution hanging over her. And she's really terribly coughing. Uh, and we for you to decipher that. This is uh, Samir. We never got to discuss that as well. And lastly, we have the People Daily uh, where Stano has drawn this for us and uh, we went up the show with this and this is all about you uh, the voter and uh, the, of course what they're telling us well what a day was yesterday Mwishimiwa I like your world what a day message to your constituents water in every home is there another campaign prank right beware of the politicians now who have water bowsers uh, coming to you with free water at the end of the day we've been watching the global today thank you Dr. Hassan Kanenje Director Horn Institute Professor Nami Damba uh, foreign and defense uh, policy analyst, also Harvard Hashi, who is a senior Horn of Africa analyst, and Dr. Peter Biarajak, who is the president of South Sudan. We thank you so much for your valuable contribution. Also, a big up to Ambassador Rasas Moencha from Burundi, uh, expanding the tentacles of Equity Bank next week. We're expecting those shares to be shared here on the show. Thank you very much for your valid company. Morning from continues to pay. Don't go away. Much more on the other side with, of course, uh, uh, our topic today on youth and politics. Don't go away with Jeffrey Rogers. Welcome back. Welcome back, and uh, that was a panel discussion uh, held uh, on uh, Kenyan national television. We want to thank our colleagues at uh, KTV uh, 
uh, for sharing uh, that uh, audio file uh, featuring uh, several panelists discussing uh, the statements and the political posture of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa vis-a-vis the uh, Russian military operation in uh, Ukraine and also uh, Africa as a whole in its position uh, in regard to resisting, and many have resisted, uh, the pressure by uh, the United States to condemn uh, the Russian Federation and to follow the sanctions uh, that have been imposed uh, by the United States and the European Union, uh, sanctions uh, which will impact the African continent due to its uh, trade relations uh, with uh, the Russian Federation. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment. Welcome back, and uh, that was the Flotations uh, with their tune entitled Nothing But a Heartache. And uh, we're going to close out our Women's History Month uh, programming uh, with a 1972 interview uh, with uh, Kathleen Cleaver, one of the early uh, members of the Black Panther Party, the first woman Central Committee member in the Black Panther Party, 
Uh, this interview was done after the 1971 split uh, inside the party a year later, and uh, she's speaking about their experience in the North African state of Algeria, which is commemorating its 60th anniversary of independence this year. Let's listen in. The following program is an interview with Kathleen Cleaver, wife of Eldridge Cleaver. Mrs. Cleaver arrived in the Bay Area Thursday. It was her first time here since 1969. She's come to gather legal support, political support, and financial support for Eldridge Cleaver so that he might return to the United States without having to be arrested upon his return for violation of parole in 1968. She's interviewed by Yolanda DeFritis of KPFA, Jean Wiley of Third World Media News, and Cheryl Johnson of the Third World Women's Alliance. And she begins the interview with an explanation of the situation in Algeria, which is the reason for her visit to this country. Later in the interview, Mrs. Cleaver speaks of the women question. So the situation is sort of one of um, expectation. Everyone anticipates something will happen because um, during the period of time from the 1st of August on which the Delta Airlines flight was brought to Algiers and the 18th of August, at which was the uh, Osval Day of Solidarity with the uh, Afro-American people, in which we had scheduled an open house, uh, which was uh, not allowed to be held by the Algerian authorities. It was quite a bit of uh, tension, conversation, uh, uh, repression, house arrest, interrogation, intimidation against uh, the members of the international section, the uh, hijackers who recently arrived, and other people affiliated or associated with the uh, Afro-American community that uh, Black Panther Party international section represents. So it's been a very, very tense situation and uh, very unprecedented. Uh, uh, it was all uh, more or less brought to a head uh, by the open letter that the elders wrote to President Boumediene. And this uh, open letter was written because of the uh, difficulty of explaining our position in any more, uh, I would say, more face-to-face -face form. And it was um, used to express our analysis and our feelings about uh, the hijackings and uh, the situation going on inside the United States and the nature of our struggle and the reason we, reasons we felt that the money should not be returned to the United States authorities and that, in fact, it should be given to us. Uh, on the, that was addressed to the President on the 2nd of August. Now, on the 8th of August, the hijackers themselves, they had been released to us, were uh, also addressed in an open letter. Uh, articulating very briefly basically the same position and that, that letter ended up with a request that the money either be returned to them and they'd be allowed to stay in Algeria and if uh, not then uh, money be returned to them and they'd be allowed to leave and the following day the international section headquarters was um, occupied all the members were put under arrest and this was um, they called it protective security. This was totally unprecedented in Algeria. And uh, 
and people were quite shocked. So uh, two days afterwards, it was released, and then we announced that we would hold the um, open house, and uh, it was scheduled for Friday. And uh, Friday, after a series of conversations and negotiations, it was not allowed to be held. People were turned away at the door. And so this, uh, the situation was extremely tense, and it was clearly two totally opposing positions about the same uh, phenomenon. And the problem was a matter of, uh, it stated a matter of uh, abridging the area in which uh, liberation movement was allowed to operate within the territory of Algeria. How how has the uh, Algerian people related to uh, the presence, your presence there? They they identify with it. You see, before our office was. Um, uh, before our movement was given any type of accreditation or headquarters in Algeria, we had, uh, uh, how to say, we were uh, participants in the first Pan-African Cultural Festival in 1969 in July, which is held in Algeria. Black Panther Party participated in that. It was the only uh, group from uh, Afro-American struggle that was there, and it was the first time that this had been, this had happened. And the people there, they identified very readily, and they uh, they really dug it because uh, of a revolutionary tradition and spirit that they have there. Does Eldridge and yourself feel that you have continued the struggle even though you've been in Algeria, and how do you feel that you've done that? Well, what you have to recognize is that um, it was during the time when Malcolm X was alive, he articulated and even initiated the process of internationalizing the struggle of the Afro-American people, of taking it out of an issue that is only confined to the geographical boundaries of the United States, and putting it on an international level as one of the many struggles going on in the world against the international phenomenon of colonialism, imperialism, and racism, in terms of what our struggle is up against. Uh, it's international, the very same forces that we have to fight here have to be fought in Africa, have to be fought in Asia, have to be fought in Latin America. So um, I think uh, this is what the, the activities of the international section once it became uh, consolidated, because these activities on the international level began in early 1969 as soon as uh, Eldridge left the country. But they were never, uh, how I'd say, we were never endorsed and given office and recognition and full uh, freedom to operate as a liberation movement until 1970. In fact, on the 13th of September, 1970, when our uh, office was officially opened in Algeria. And uh, I think that on the international level, we did something that had never been done before. And, and in fact, the opening of that uh, office in Algiers represented a very historical event in the sense this is the first time in the history of our struggle where any other government has even recognized that we were engaged in a liberation struggle against these uh, same forces of colonialism, imperialism, and racism as the other liberation movements were, and that any government out outside of this country had recognized uh, this as a legitimate struggle. And this is very important. If you remember, during the career of Malcolm X, he did travel through Africa. He did travel in uh, North Africa, and he did speak at the OAU uh, meeting. But it was much le much more of like uh, 
investigative, informative thing. He did expound a position, but it was never concretized. And in the work of the international section, you see this whole analysis concretized and put into motion. This was in uh, the period of from 1969 to 19, uh, up till now. But what's happened is that, whereas in 1969 and 1970, he was a very positive and very powerful thing uh, that uh, we're able to set in motion on the international level and uh, through many uh, different types of activities. One of the most outstanding was the uh, visit of the uh, anti-American people's anti-imperialist delegation to North Korea, China, and North Vietnam in the summer of 1970. Another activity was the um, visit of uh, a delegation of the international section of the Black Panther Party from uh, Algiers with uh, members from other areas uh, to the People's Republic of the Congo, which is very, very important to us and, and our struggle, we felt. And uh, the ability to organize uh, among the black GIs who are uh, active and uh, struggling in West Germany. We have a tremendously in uh, West Germany. And all of these things were possible uh, during that period of time. However, now the political climate on the international level has altered so tremendously that uh, it's, not, uh, it's not possible to function on that level. In fact, uh, many of the uh, politics that were represented by governments uh, that we were able to visit and to have negoti negotiations with during that period of time have changed. The personnel have changed through either attempted coups or right-wing splits or whatever. The same phenomenon that we see going on everywhere. The visit of Nixon to uh, the People's Republic of China was a tremendous setback to the entire international, international struggle of um, revolutionary struggle, liberation struggles, whatever, because uh, here people saw that the, you know, like the highest level of power and revolutionary fervor in the third world, you know, had uh, extended its hospitality, hospitality to the, uh, you know, <laughs> number one enemy of all the struggling peoples in the world. And, and really now, uh, you, when you look at the situation of the Vietnamese, they're being increasingly isolated and uh, increasingly uh, stabbed in the back by their allies in the socialist camp. Uh, and also the Palestinians are being isolated and stabbed in the back by their former allies. And all over the world, wherever you find revolutionary forces, you find a conflict, a confrontation, a suppression of them by their own government, or their own people, like the... Uh, the split that went down in the Congolese Workers' Party in the People's Republic of Congo and the power struggle that took place in the People's Republic of China, which Lian Pao has been uh, named the black sheep of. But I think everyone can see now that there's a profound difference in the politics articulated in the past by Lian Pao and those politics being implemented in the present by Chu and Lai. And uh, these, are, these are the types of problems in this in, in this type of um, in this type of atmosphere that uh, our international work has been carried out and as that alters more and more in favor of imperialist powers represented by the United States or 
by uh, social imperialism, and then it becomes increasingly difficult, and we also become more and more isolated and unable to uh, have any type of productive results in that situation. I did want to ask you what the, your relationship to the Black Panther Party is going to be now, and if Eldridge comes back, comes back because like. Are you considered the international faction of the Black Panther Party? Well, we don't like to even talk in terms of factions because what you have is uh, at one time in history, there was a group of people organized under the name of the Black Panther Party who moved along a particular ideology and a particular structure. Now, as that structure and that ideology became uh, more and more developed, uh, the contradictions between people who related to one part or people who related to other also became more developed until those contradictions between different ideas of how to struggle and how to structure an organization and where the primary effort should be, where the primary resources should be, and what really your political objectives were, became impossible to uh, be carried out in the same organization. And there were series of contradictions and splits and expulsions and such things from starting really in 1969. And the last uh, most uh, public one was the one between members of the Central Committee themselves, those Central Committee members who were living in Algeria in exile and those Central Committee members who were uh, in this country. Uh, and much of the problems had to do really with the structure of the Central Committee itself, which uh, all the efforts to develop more in harmony with the uh, structure of the party had been blocked. And there were quite a few problems there. And... Um, I'm sure everyone is conscious of the fact that we had a strong role in one phase of the development of the Black Panther Party and view that as our contribution, uh, as our way of participating in the Afro-American liberation struggle. Uh, the, the way the Black Panther Party is operating now, uh, many people uh, other than us feel is not really very effective in contributing to the advancement of the struggle and are seeking another form of organization, another avenue, but that would uh, carry out that same uh, objective goal and have the similar type of ideology that's even more developed in relationship to our environment. And these are the efforts that uh, people who uh, have been referred to as uh, a faction and uh, many people outside of that have been engaged in trying to come up with the proper uh, structure and the proper uh, ideological perspective to advance the struggle on to a higher level instead of just stop at one particular phase and just stay there. If plans should go as you assume, um, uh, and this is also like asking what do you mean by a higher level, what, what way would you consider your organiza organization continuing the struggle here in what for, direction well, for would you example uh, you could talk about the efforts to um, expose and to eliminate police occupation of the Af black community you can talk about the efforts to expose and eliminate the oppression of the court system the oppression of the prison system the uh, all the avenues of uh, control that the system places upon black people and how do you go about first exposing them, first educating the people to how they operate and then organizing uh, an effective tool for smashing that control. 
to see. And then when you turn around and see people deciding to uh, cooperate with that same system, uh, to join, in fact, forces with those instruments, then you see that they, the, they were interested mostly in exposing and explaining, but not in organizing a tool to smash that apparatus, but in organizing a pressure force against that apparatus to the point where that apparatus allows them to join it. And that is not really anything that could be considered revolutionary. It really is something that's called reform. And in any struggle for liberation of an oppressed people, you will always find those elements that will participate up to a certain point, but will stop at a certain level of reform. And this is a very, uh, very profound tendency in our struggle of groups and organizations that come up with a very militant or a very powerful position against changing a certain aspect of the system, and then they will settle for that aspect of the system not being eliminated but being reformed. One thing I wanted to ask is, like, there are contradictions, and you resolve them, you know, internally and externally. And, like, because I know this question of reform comes up many times with organizations, but in order to break anything, you know, and really wage a righteous struggle, you have to work internally with that. And, you know, sometimes that's revolutionary. And I, I want to know, you know, what do you feel about that? For instance, let's say like a trade union kind of thing. You may have to work inside that trade union to organize it in order for the people to, you know, to raise their consciousness. And that, you know, is working within something, but it's raising the level of the people. Also, the sometimes time. you might have to organize another kind of union within that same industry mm -hmm. that's off based on different principles mm -hmm. to show people that it's not the principle of having a union that's at fault, but it's the ideas and the way in which this union is functioning that's at fault. And so either you try to operate and change the union from within that union or you try and form another union that by contrast mm -hmm. shows people within the union and without the union that there is an alternative means of obtaining the same objectives as mm -hmm. the union. Yeah, but that is still working within, you see. You know, in other words, I guess what I'm getting at is like sometimes you have to, you know, work with the masses at a certain level and build towards that other process. Well, I think that was what the objective of you know. the Black Panther Party was, mm -hmm. you see. And then when you stop at a certain process and say, well, now we're not going to do any of those things that we did in the past, but we're going to do this. For example, when you have in 1967 a position of uh, organizing, arming, and educating the community to fight against the forces that are plotting genocide against us in 1966, this is a primary principle of the Black Panther Party. And then in 1972, when these forces are so power, much more powerfully organized, when genocide is much more clearly a reality, when people are much more willing and much more uh, conscious of the need to fight against them, then you turn around and say, well, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, I think that raises some other kind of questions than what you're talking about. Uh, Thursday morning's press conference, you indicated that the situation is a precarious one, but that it is not a question, and that Eldridge Cleaver's life um, is in jeopardy, but it's not a question of the Algerians um, um, refusing asylum. Is it then a question of a refusal of protection? Or... Well... It would be hard to say that, 
But I think it could be clear that once people express a profound difference of opinion politically with an organization, that their relationship to that organization is affected by their difference of opinion. And I think that the uh, tactics that have been deployed against us in Algeria uh, are less than those that could be considered uh, uh, receptive or uh, supportive of the tactics of uh, uh, police action in place of political negotiations to resolve what was uh, a very highly political problem. And you see, you never find these tactics used in anything but a political situation. These are very definitely political tactics out of a whole realm of political tactics that could be used to resolve a problem. What is the nature of, let's call it, the, the conflict? Well, in Algeria, the conflict, the one that came to the surface, centered around the uh, viability of using uh, ransom as a tactic of raising funds for revolutionary activities. How does that also relate to the the hijacking in the sense that there were these people, all these people trying to escape from the United States and all coming to Algiers? Like, how did that affect you in what particular? Well, way? it put a lot much more spotlight and pressure on us than had been before. Were all these people Black Panther members? No seems that the question of uh, women might be insignificant in relation to the struggle as you've been talking about right now, but I would like your opinion on uh, on that subject. Well, I don't think there's anything about women that's insignificant. Uh, in, uh, well, I'm a woman, and uh, I'm involved in all of those problems that I mentioned, and I think that all women who are oppressed, part of the oppressed community, are involved in those situations, especially when you talk about something like the adult authority, although it rules the lives of uh, men and women who are in prison, but the entire families there, either their husbands or their wives, their children, their mothers and everything are totally disrupted by this uh, arbitrary power and it's something, it's an issue that not only concerns uh, several million prisoners, but it also concerns uh, several million women in the state of California. What do you think of the women's liberation struggle? First thing about the women's liberation struggle, that's uh, when I was in California, right before I left, the women's liberation struggle was just sort of like getting on its feet. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like a, a group of women who were sitting around, they were disgusted with the political organizations and the way they treated women. And because of their political <laughs> orientation, they wanted to do something about it. But it was really not a movement. It was like a discussion group type thing and it was predominantly white. And uh, there was uh, also parallel to that within the political organizations in which third world women were involved, a similar struggle, but it was in inside the organization. Like the women were struggling for their own rights and their own positions inside this organization, whereas the women's liberation movement was forming groups just of women outside of these political organizations. And they were putting pressure on the organizations that were mixed and so they raised the issue of uh, women's liberation, of male chauvinism, and they forced it into the political arena where everyone had to mm -hmm. confront it and had to deal with that. And that was a very positive accomplishment. I think we have to look into, to a certain extent, the history of the movement for the emancipation of women in this country, which has always been dominated by white women. And at every strong 
period in the movement for the emancipation of women is paralleled by a strong period in the movement for the liberation of blacks. Um, and so I think that we see some kind of social parallel there in the struggle against uh, racism and the struggle against sexism, whereas the blacks will be struggling against racism, mostly men and women together, uh, as a result of this struggle on the part of an oppressed community within the white community among the white people the more oppressed women uh, also began to wage a struggle for their emancipation and in terms of the worldwide struggle for the emancipation of women the vanguard of that struggle has always been inside the united states as a result you might say in terms of the white women uh, coming out of uh, probably the front whole frontier bag where the distinction between women and men were not so great as they were on the uh, very uh, much more structured class system that existed in Europe. And in terms of the black women, the distinction between the woman and the man's slave was not so great as it was in the more structured uh, society that the blacks lived in in Africa. And so you have a breaking down of distinctions, you know, a much less sexist society developing in America, both in the slave population and the uh, settler population. And... Uh, so the traditions inside the United States as far as the uh, position of women are far more liberal and advanced than in most countries of the world that have a much more static or feudalistic uh, base uh, to their culture. However, it's in those areas where the women where, that have waged a national liberation struggle, such as in North Korea and China, North Vietnam, and have engaged effectively in the uh, socialist construction of society after a prolonged war, that we see the position of women having changed the greatest from what it was prior to the struggle to what it is today. Uh, whereas may, maybe the women in the United States have a much more advanced, they, we didn't have to go through a thing where we were not allowed to walk on the same side of the street as men, uh, as in Korea, or where women were not even allowed to look at their husbands in public as in Vietnam. We didn't start from that base. But in terms of how far the struggle of women in the United States is going, uh, I think we have quite a long way to go. And I think that um, that the domination of the women's liberation movement by whites uh, has made, had a very negative effect on the even ability to raise the issue of liberation of women in black and third world communities because it comes with a negative con connotation. But that's not true. You see, so it's used against us, although uh, the problems, as far as women's problems are faced, are far more profound in the oppressed communities than in the white communities, as you know so well by your triple jeopardy title <laughs> of the magazine. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, you have the, the triple role of um, wife, mother, and political activist, revolutionary. Um, <laughs> I have two questions. <laughs> One is, um, first of all, how do you personally cope with those roles? I mean, if, if what advice would you give for a woman who is a mother and who is a wife and who wants to move very, very um, solidly into um, political activity? Well, first of all, they can't have very sensitive feelings. <laughs> and secondly, they have to be very convinced that what they want to do and that it's right and be able to organize their life and make up their own minds and push for what they want because they will confront a very powerful resistance 
I don't care what the nature of the organization of the work is that you want to do. If you are a mother and a wife, uh, you have very powerful resistance in that your place is in the home. And with the upsurge of nationalism in the black community, uh, I'll just say nationalism and national consciousness, I'm not talking about the desire for revolutionary change of the society. There's also this upsurge about, well, now, um, you know, the place of the black woman is in the home. And in the face of the type of oppression and exploitation and murder that our people are being subjected to, both men and women, I think this is really a, like a petty bourgeois uh, dream that has nothing to do with our situation and that it could only be imposed after centuries of struggle to get us into the position now where we're in a much better position to fight than we were during the conditions of segregation or during the conditions of slavery where the women fought as hard as the man and no one ever came around talking about the woman's places in the home. And now that so much struggle has been accomplished, people are coming around or men are going around saying and some women are going around saying that their position is in the home. And, uh, well, I say maybe it is in the home, but I think your home should be well-armed because too many people are coming in the homes of black people and killing them at night. You see, so we don't have that type of luxury to relate to that at this time. <clears throat> There's a lot of sisters who really have a lot of conflicts, you know, trying to work out, of like working in an organization, being a mother, and also the the other reality that there's a man that, that she lives with. And really trying to strike a balance with all that. And well, we can't strike any kind know. of balance as long as we relate to it as individuals. The only type of balance can be struck when we can move to some type of collective level where a certain number of sisters and brothers who are all struggling for the same struggle will parcel out certain areas of work. That certain of them will do be able to do political work and certain of them will have to do housework and certain of them will have to do uh, children work uh, to give some type of participation, you know, not on the basis of, well, you have to participate because you're a woman, or I have to participate because you're a man, mm -hmm. but in terms of what kind of work has to be done, you see. Now, it's true that in the majority of cases at this time, military and clandestine and more aggressive actions uh, is the province of men, and more or less supportive and politically, uh, you might say, secretarial, and these type of more peaceful or more, uh, how would I say, second-line type activities are the province of women, but that's not any necessity, you see. And a large part of that is the cause because so many women do have small children and they have to stay and live in a certain way. They're not... Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview with uh, Kathleen Cleaver from 1972, August of 1972, and uh, we're going to be winding down our program uh, for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We'll close out with Aretha Franklin from her 1971 concert at the Fillmore West. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off. Have a beautiful week. For all of us here at um, Fillmore West, this is a long-awaited privilege, great pleasure to bring on the First Lady of Soul, a woman named Aretha Franklin.